Welcome to the second installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, news, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. This installment of Ear to the Ground is a follow-up to our first program, which focused on Frances Morlepay's recent visit to Minnesota. In a talk she gave on November 18, 2005, during a Land Stewardship Project fundraiser, LePay laid out the difference between thin democracy and living democracy. She then profiled several real-world examples from here and abroad that exemplify living democracy in action. LePay, who recently published a book called Democracy's Edge, Choosing to Save Our Country by Bringing Democracy to Life, also talked about how we can work to make living democracy a reality in our daily lives. During this edition of Ear to the Ground, we will feature the first part of her November 18th talk. The second half of her talk will be featured in a future podcast. But first, here's an excerpt of an interview I did with LePay while she was in Minnesota. Among other things, we talked about how, in her writing and speaking, she uses a combination of facts, analysis, and real-world anecdotes of living democracy in action to get her point across. LePay also discussed how we can deal with our own fears when we try to practice living democracy. In fact, she concedes that fear is an issue that she has to learn to manage herself. The, the danger of using anecdotes, they're great. I mean, that, that's what it is, is that I think uh, we need more of that to kind of show, tell these stories, because people react to stories rather than just being told a, a theory or, right. a, you know, being preached at or whatever. But the, always the danger is that looking back several years at something that's been held up as an example is that uh, maybe things didn't go right and it's, so you, you, you need yes. that overlying yes well you know it's interesting that you say that because since this book democracy's edge started as a update as an update of the quickening of america mm-hmm. and then became its own entity but um i was so nervous going back to the stories that i told yeah. in the quickening of america because again the media is not covering them, so even I, who think I'm, you know, pretty with it and and, and tuned in, uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe a lot of these have just died, and and so my whole message about living democracy emerging is going to be put to a lie. And what I found again is that yes, there were some that that weren't as strong examples or didn't exist right. anymore, but by and large, each one of the stories that I that I told in that earlier book, now uh, written 12 years ago, mm-hmm. have just just incredibly uh, grown uh, in power, in depth of uh, of uh, complexity, sophistication. So that tells you something. Yeah, it hmm. does. And uh, so I find that the art of this is your is your you just said it. You know, is is going back and forth between yes, telling the stories so that people can imagine themselves, because I believe we very much are social mimics, and we think we can do it if we see somebody else do it, and at the same time, uh, pulling back to see, okay, what are the big principles here that that really are the rethinking, because we also carry around these mental maps, and to even understand um, the significance of, say, what the Land Stewardship Project yeah. is doing and, and starting... Um, and helping people get started in farming and in resisting factory farming by enabling people to organize at the very local level and putting that in the framework of democracy 
that to me has power because you're you're giving them a larger values framework in which to understand what they're doing. And uh, I think all of us need that, that if we just feel like we're just some little <laughs> random um, protest action, right. it's very disempowering. If we can see ourselves as part of what I feel <laughs> that the folks who are, you know, the, the 30 victories that mm-hmm. you all have had against... Uh, uh, corporate factory farming, that that is part of a global, not just national, but in hopes that, you know, we talk about the global movement of farmers standing up, uh, and there are now international networks like Via Campesina, where uh, saying, no, you know, family farm agriculture is the most efficient and the most sustainable and clearly the most uh, culturally uh, rich uh, way that we can support ourselves. One thing I like about your book is you admit in several places that you've been practicing or trying to practice living democracy yourself and fighting the good fight for the better part of three decades, you still get scared. You You talked about a meeting you went to. uh, uh, It was two candidates who were going to debate, and you didn't... You feel like you didn't handle that as well as you liked, and I like the fact that you admit you're scared. Uh, but I was a little bit surprised that you still get to, you're afraid of being embarrassed and yes, all the things that we all, you know, average people. Think well, about. I think fear is the greatest enemy of democracy. Certainly, the greatest enemy of democracy, as I'm describing it in this living way, because I, here's how I interpret it to sort of take myself personally off the hook and on the hook, and that is that. I think as we evolved, you know, when I look back and try to imagine being out there on the African savanna, we knew that if we separated from the pack, that we were probably going to die. Mm-hmm. So it is really scary to separate from the pack, yeah. to say, no, I, I, I think I have a better way. And yet now more and more of us are seeing that metaphorically speaking, you know, the whole pack is about to head over the Victoria Falls there with a 400-foot drop-off. Right. And so in that circumstance, being alive right now, where we can see the, the dominant pack, if you will, is headed toward disaster, then to separate means we're affirming life, not denying life. Mm-hmm. And, and it might mean even directly life, certainly for us, but, but certainly life for the planet as well. And so we have to rethink those fear sensations, because I think, at least in me, they seem pretty hardwired. During the first part of her talk before a standing-room-only crowd at St. Joan of Arc Church, Frances Moore-LePay succinctly laid out the problems created by thin democracy and why we can't afford to ignore them. I um, will begin talking about myself because I'm always nervous when I speak and it's always easier to talk about yourself than big global issues. So, here I go. I began as a young woman thinking that either things would get better or worse they would get better if people listened to me, and they would get worse if people didn't. But I failed to prepare myself for the era in which I have matured into the elder that I am. And that is a world in which things are getting both better and worse very rapidly. And so what I didn't know would be required of me is to learn to grow my heart big enough to face it all. And that is the challenge that you and I face at this moment. To grow our hearts big enough 
that we can stare down the disgrace, the horror that is present today, and at the very same time, keep alive and turn to and embrace the powerful emergent living democracy that I believe the Land Stewardship Project is part of. Both of those are required to live in this era. So, I have been asking myself over all these years, my question started with why hunger in a world of plenty, and it just kept growing and growing and growing over the decades, until it grew to this big one. How can it be that we are creating as societies that which as individuals we abhor? That is the, the biggest conundrum. How can that possibly be? Because I know that not one of us would get up in the morning or find anyone who gets up in the morning and says, yeah, I think it's a great idea that children are dying of hunger and I want to make sure that one more dies today. And yet 14,000 are. Three Asian tsunamis worth of death every month. And you know, we, we come home and recognize here the consequences here in our own country where a child born in our capital city has twice the chance of dying before its first birthday than a child born in the capital city of China. So how can it be uh, that we are living in this world that none of us feel is ours, that we feel that we're choosing, and how do we, do we live in that world? And my, my challenge to myself has been to attempt to keep peeling away the layers of causation. Because I feel that if we don't ask the why behind the whys, if we don't see the pattern of causation, then what do we do? We just grasp for any sort of desperate act of, of protest or charity, or we just shrink into our own despair. And so my sense is if we can somehow find a way to see the causes of our decline, that why are we at the edge then perhaps we can see those entry points to begin to shift the pattern and we will not act out of desperation. So that really has been what I have been attempting to do throughout these decades. And so the question is, I've asked, okay, what could be powerful enough to have us creating this world that none of us really is choosing? And I've come to believe that there's only really one thing that powerful, and that is the power of ideas, as strange as that may be. And I was very much influenced in this realization through the work of many great seers over time, but in particular, one book I read about eight years ago, and many of you of my generation, I want to say my generation, I point to my hair so you know what generation that is. Um, one person who's influenced me so greatly is Eric Fromm. And his book that I read eight years ago called The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness. And in that book, Eric Fromm says this, it is man's humanity that makes him so inhumane. It is man's humanity that makes him so inhumane. And then Fromm goes on to explain to us that what is unique about human beings is our capacity to construct ideas about reality. In fact, that's who we are. We form what he calls frames of orientation or what Anna and I in our book Hope's Edge called mental maps. These maps literally determine 
what we can see and what we cannot see. They ultimately determine what we believe it means to be a human being, what we are, our essence, what we are capable of. So now, that's all well and good if we happen to be alive when the dominant mental map, the one that we absorb like an ether that, that we just breathe without even knowing it, if it were life-serving. But my challenge to us tonight, and you can push back at me on the, at the Q&A, but my challenge tonight is that we happen to be alive when the dominant mental map, the one that is now going global, is fundamentally life-destroying. And so what is that mental map? I suggest that it, it starts with what it means to be human and ultimately culminates in our very definition of democracy. So I'm suggesting that the map that we absorb through advertising, but not just through advertising, through all sorts of ways, is that fundamentally the human essence, when you peel away all the extras, all the fluff, it can be this. We are selfish little accumulators. We are selfish materialists trying to push the other guy out. And yes, you know, there are nice edges, but that's our essence. And so, if we really believe that about ourselves, then um, certainly we're not capable of coming together and deliberating over a common future. You know, that old-fashioned idea democracy? We have to turn over more and more of our fate to officials, so we reduce democracy simply to electing others to do for us or to us, those experts up there. Um, who we can complain about, but that's about it. And we believe that we have to turn over as many decisions as we possibly can to some automatic force, some impersonal force that we can't tamper with. Ronald Reagan called it the magic of the market. And we thought that because we are so flawed that if we just turn over our fate to this magical force, it will sort out outcomes and we'll all benefit. And so, what we've seen over my adult lifetime is more and more and more reduced to simply a commodity. The essence of life turned over to a commodity, sold within this magical force, the market. So, food, yes of course, then seeds, yes of course, one company, Monsanto, 11,000 patents, genes, and now water. I, water is the one that somehow, because I experience it every day, is one that baffles me the most. I was just in an airport, I've been a lot at airport recently, and I was leaning over a water fountain, drinking water, free water, a few yards from people who were paying for water three times what they pay for gasoline that they complain about. And it was such a moment of realization, the power of our mental map, that once we give ourselves over to this impersonal force that I'm going to get this into this for in a moment, but we, we then believe that it is so mystified that if it's bottled and sold to us, we must need it and we must be willing to pay for it. Even that I once calculated, I was just in a hotel here in the city where the bottled water they were offering me came out to about $15 a gallon. I didn't buy it, but... And I was in the South Station, the train station in Boston not very long ago, and I was rushing to the train, and I rushed up to the concession stand, and I said, could I have some tap water? And the lady said, what's that? <laughs> this is in a blink of historical time, of course. So, what, of course, I'm saying, what this magic of the market, this 
this piece of what I've come to call thin democracy, this notion that democracy is simply elected government and a market economy. We are now spreading throughout the world. And I was, I was so struck. I was in late, late 80s. I was in rural China on a state farm that was being dismantled by the government. And I was walking to breakfast, and there were these big posts with speakers, loudspeakers on them, and they were blaring these messages in Chinese. And I figured these were the same loudspeakers that had been blaring out the Mao, you know, uh, communist slogans. But now they were going toward capitalism, so I was trying to figure out, what are they saying to us? And so I asked the interpreter, what are we hearing at 7 a.m.? And he said, the market is a glorious path, and it will make us all wealthy. <laughs> it is the market religion. And so what I'm suggesting, though, is this exportation of thin democracy, it's not just any kind of market that is the market that we absorb here and we come to, because becomes our mental map. It is a peculiar notion of a market based on one rule. Most of us think about supply and demand, but actually behind it all is one rule, and that is highest return to existing wealth. Corporate decisions are based on highest return to shareholders, highest return to the people who already have the wealth. And so it follows like night today, that, of course, more and more people get the wealth it is in fewer and fewer hands. And so I, I was really not surprised, although horrified, that the last uh, counting of Fortune magazine told us that today, 691 people, maybe they can all squeeze into this chapel, 691 people control today more wealth than three billion, half the world's population, earn in an entire year. Now I'm saying this is not an aberration, this is the logical consequences of the mental math that you and I breathe in day in and day out. Now, of course, the, the consequences of this thin democracy notion of the one rule economy means that the market, which we prize for its openness and competitiveness, ends up killing itself, as we see, of course, in the grain trade today, where two companies control almost half of the world's grain. Or I look at food itself, more broadly speaking, and I'm so aware uh, in my adult life what has happened. Uh, we Part of the what keeps alive this notion of thin democracy is the idea of choice. And we walk into a supermarket and we see 30 to 40,000 food items and we think, oh, wow, we have a competitive market. Because what we don't see is that 10 corporations are bringing us half of those items. So when we grab the Kraft cheese or the Miller's beer or the Altoids mints or the Maxwell House, we don't realize that it is one company. What company is that? Right, which changed its name to Altria, dangerously sounding like altruism. So we are blinded. We are blinded to the degree of concentration and the consequences of it. I was just on a panel on childhood obesity, and I was sitting there thinking, if there was ever a wake-up call of where thin democracy takes us and this mystified market takes us, this should be it. We are risking our children's lives. Today, a, one, a child born today has a one in three chance of developing diabetes. 
We are now spending one of every nine private health dollars on diseases related to obesity already, even before the, the worst of this epidemic. Already, it is costing more in health dollars than tobacco-related diseases cause. Directly related, now nutritionists, the evidence is coming in, how is it directly related to the degradation of our food? My favorite chapter in Diet for a Small Planet is still, Who Asked for Fruit Loops? <laughs> and what I ask the reader to do is very pertinent to this topic of thin democracy. Because I say, okay, just imagine that you are the CEO of conglomerated foods, and your job is to bring highest return to your shareholders, highest return to existing wealth, the single rule market. So what do you do? Well, of course, you know, you shelf life, you want longer shelf life, and so you take out the wheat germ, and you take out the fiber, and you want to, the cheapest products, so you put in the trans fat, and then, when high fructose corn syrup, because of incredible glut in the world market, because people are too poor to make a demand on the on what their bodies need, so we have this mountains of of corn uh, depressing prices that um, make corn so cheap that it makes perfect economic sense to turn it into high fructose corn syrup that is now ubiquitous in processed foods and not even in processed foods. I was in Starbucks. I hate to admit. Recently, and I picked up an egg salad sandwich, and even it had high fructose corn syrup in it. I put it back. Uh, but my point is that, oh, well, about high fructose corn syrup, maybe many of you know now that nutritionists are implicating it in the obesity epidemic because high fructose corn syrup does not act in our bodies the way that sugar does. It doesn't tell us that we're full. And it also, uh, contributes to triglycerides in our blood, uh, which contributes to high, uh, contributes to heart disease. So I'm just suggesting that we are the first species on earth that has ever turned our food supply into the major health threat to the species. It's, it's really quite stunning. And this should be when we think, oh, wait a minute, how did we get to this point? where food is actually a threat to our health, and what does that tell us about thin democracy? But thin democracy, be, be, it's, oh, I should add here, that another reason it occurred to me as I was writing Democracy's Edge, that all of this should have been clear to us about the consequences of this one world economy, is that a lot of us played Monopoly. And I was thinking, why didn't I get it back there, you know? I was always the one who would lose at the end of the night. My brother would always win. And he had all the property, and I couldn't even afford a place on Baltic Avenue. <laughs> why didn't I get this problem about this market that... Well, I, a friend of mine is a Quaker, a very uh, long-term, you know, old family, old Quaker family. And she told me that it was a Quaker lady, Lizzie Maggie, who invented the first monopoly. And it was supposed to be an object lesson to teach us about what happens in this one rule economy. But Lizzie's message somehow didn't get through, and unfortunately, she didn't get the patent. Parker's brother, Parker brother, did get the patent, and there you have it. But in any case, this is, um, my point simply is that where we are is an outgrowth of these givens of thin democracy. So my, my real point here is that 
This thin democracy and the middle map upholding it is taking us to the edge. So that while it might be tempting to look at the, that Bush is stumbling now, as we all see, uh, in fact, seven in ten Americans now say that our country is headed in the wrong direction. And so it's very tempting to say that, oh, all we need to do is join the Bush's history parade. But I'm calling us to peel away the layers here to look at what is reflected in the deeper level. How did we get here? How did we get here? Because we've been warned. We've been warned by Democrats, we've been warned by Republicans. Over centuries we've been warned about the danger of thin democracy. But no, by no one more eloquent, I believe, than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In April of 1938, Franklin Roosevelt said to Congress, in a session talking about the threat of monopoly, President Roosevelt said, the liberty of democracy is not safe. If the people tolerate the growth of private power to the point that it's stronger than the democratic state itself, that, in its essence, is fascism. That is what our president told us, the danger of thin democracy. And of course, part of that danger is that once you have, and what he was getting at here, is once you have such tight concentration of control, 1% of households controlling more wealth than 95% of households put together, you have such concentration that it infects and corrupts the political system. And so we have today, in Congress, 56 lobbyists walking the halls for every one representative that you and I have put there to represent our interests. So this is what thin democracy leads to. It is always vulnerable to take over by a narrow, unrepresentative group. So here we are. Here we are. The crisis I'm suggesting is not Bush, not Cheney, not their deception. It is thin democracy itself. It is the assumption that market exchange and elections are democracy when thin democracy inevitably is vulnerable to take over by a narrow, unrepresentative elite. So I was doing a radio interview in Tucson, and having said this, the interviewer said, you know what, I think you've named this um, wrong. You should really call it thin ice democracy. So I want to go back to press now and correct the, the uh, name that I'm giving our predicament. That wraps up our second installment of Ear to the Ground. If you'd like to learn more about Frances Moore LePay and her work, please visit www.democraciesedge.org. That's www.democraciesedge.org. Just a reminder that we will broadcast the second part of her talk in our next program. This podcast is a new endeavor for the Land Stewardship Project, and we'd like to hear from you. You can send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also get me on the horn at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSP staff member who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. 
And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Thank you.